where I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. We are continuing uh, in our series together for the gospel as we look at our vision and mission uh, here at New City Fellowship. Today we're going to talk about this first descriptor in our vision statement that we are praying uh, will characterize us as a church as we join in gospel ministry here in Southeast Grand Rapids. So let me read that first part of the vision with that descriptor to join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids as a God-glorifying, God-glorifying church. And we're going to look at that this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10. So listen to the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. One of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And I'm going to read verse 1 also of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would, by the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus, that you would open up your Word to us. I pray that as all of us, even the one speaking, sits under the authority of your Word, that you would teach us and that you would do that work in us of making us more like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray continue to shape us and mold us together as a community of believers here in Southeast Grand Rapids. Bless our church to be a city set on a hill. And I pray that people will be drawn to you as we proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer that comes back is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If you were raised in a church tradition that uses uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this question and its answer is likely imprinted on your mind. But even if you weren't raised in that tradition, perhaps 
something like this question and answer has been conveyed to you in the teaching and preaching of the church tradition you were a part of. Few of us would argue this aim of bringing glory to God and enjoying Him forever, that that should be the ultimate goal of our lives. Yet honesty compels us to acknowledge that despite this truth being imprinted on our minds through the regular rehearsal of the catechism or the taking in of regular preaching and teaching on the matter, we, we find it challenging given the ongoing battle with the sin that is in the world and the sin that is in us, our sin nature that remains with us even after our conversion, we find it challenging to live consistently, if we are honest, for the glory of God. We are pulled by the distracting pleasures of the world and by our own consuming self-interest to spend our time giving glory not to God but to ourselves, to those distracting pleasures. Indeed, the good things of this life that God has given us to enjoy in thankful relationship with Him become, become the all-consuming focus of our lives at times. The things we joy in above and apart from God. Now, some of you may be asking, what does it mean to glorify something? To glorify something is to publish its fame, to tell of its honor, its prestige, its renown. It is to declare to others that that something is worthy of note, worthy of attention, worthy of honor, worthy of praise. And for the believer, with our words and with our lives, we have been called out to declare that which is worthy of all honor, that which is worthy of all praise, that which is worthy of all attention, that which is worthy of all notoriety. For in his character and in his deeds, who is like God? Whose deeds are more notable than his? Whose character is more beautiful than his? I mean, think about it. The human community tweets and posts and proclaims the beauty and glory of all sorts of human acts and attributes some of them good, lots of them terrible. Yet as Christians, we are tied relationally to the most beautiful being imaginable. Do our lives, do our lives reflect that? Does our day-to-day living acknowledge that? I chose this passage intentionally as we think about our vision of uh, to be a God-glorifying community because I wanted us to see That glorifying uh, God, glorying in God, isn't just something we do in a worship service or other religious uh, gatherings and activities. According to the Apostle Paul, this act of glorying uh, uh, glorying in God, glorifying God, is in fact a day-to-day call, a call that we carry even in the seemingly mundane activities of our lives. I mean, what can be more basic than buying groceries and eating? What can be more basic than buying groceries and eating? Yet Paul 
sets this familiar command to glorify God in all we do in the context of buying groceries and eating. Bet you didn't know that you can glorify God while grocery shopping. (laughs) Paul answers a very specific question proposed to him by the believers in this ancient city of Corinth. The principles embedded here apply to the whatever you do phrase in verse 31. In all things, we are to maintain that call given to us by the God who created us in His image and after His likeness, that call which Paul's colleague Peter echoes in his letter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The people who are walking in light, in the light of the most excellent, most honorable, most beautiful, most glorious being beyond imagining, should be living to make Him known in the world in all that we do. Amen, people of God. So what does glorying God, glorying in God or glorifying God, what does it look like for us as the Christian community? Well, I want to suggest, first of all, that it means living free from idolatry. It means living free from idolatry. In verses 14 to 22, Paul addresses a central commitment of the Christian life in glorifying God. The believers in Corinth, like believers throughout the ancient world at that time, were inundated with idolatry. Idolatry covered the landscape. It permeated the lives of the human community from idol temples to idol statues and statuettes to food offered and sacrificed to idols to idol feast meals celebrating the idol. Idolatry was everywhere. How do you glorify God? How do you live faithful to His honor, His fame, His praise when false gods are promoted all around you? And this was an especially important question for many believers in the church because so many of them had been saved, transferred into the kingdom of God from a life of serving idols. It was also important because, as is clear from the text, some of the believers in Corinth felt at home going to the idol feast and eating food offered to the idol at these feasts, likely believing their faith to be strong enough to resist the message that was promoted at these feasts. Add to this the reality that Christians had to rub shoulders day to day with those who were not Christians. Indeed, we're called to do so. And perhaps you will understand the import of the question as to how one glorifies God when they are surrounded by idolatry. And Paul does not mince words here. He cuts to the chase, as they say, commanding the church at Corinth with these words in verse 14 of this same chapter. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, run. Don't even mess around with it. Treat it like a pit bull that got loose from its owner's yard. Y'all probably can't appreciate that analogy unless you're from the hood. (laughs) So y'all treat it like whatever you believe is a real danger in your life. Run! Run! 
And of course, Paul's point here isn't that Christians ought to separate themselves from unbelievers. In dealing with another dangerous sin in the life of believers, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, the sex, with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. No, these are the very people God has called you to go to with the message of His salvation in Jesus. What Paul is forbidding then is not association with unbelievers, but rather participation in their worship of their false gods. Don't join in activities or practices that celebrate the message, the values, the classifications, the social philosophy of the idols. And he gives reasons. The first being that our fellowship, our communion, is with the Lord. It's with the Lord Jesus and with the triune God as a whole through Him. We belong now to God through Christ. That's what our ceremonial meal points to, the Lord's Supper. Our participation, our fellowship, our communion is with God through Christ. We belong to Him now. So how can we then participate in or embrace a set of values, a set of spiritual practices, classifications of the world, social philosophies that are not rooted in our communion with Christ? Reason two, because there's no such thing as an idol Participation in the worship of idols is really participation with demons, since it is, in fact, demonic forces that are behind these false gods. And by participating in these idol feasts, these meals and celebration of idols, some of the believers in Corinth didn't seem to realize that they were partnering with demonic forces. They were, through their participation in these meals, furthering the agenda of those demonic forces to keep people bound and separated from seeing the glory of God and the message of the gospel concerning Jesus. And finally, Paul says they were provoking God's jealousy. God will tolerate no rivals to His claim over this world or over our lives. He created the world, and He created us for His glory, and He will not give that glory to a false god, to demons. He will bring whatever discipline is necessary to draw us away from false gods and toward Himself. Brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you this morning, if we want to be a community that is God-glorifying, then it begins at this point. It begins in our fleeing from idolatry that is all around us. And make no mistake about it, the look of our idolatry has changed, but not the substance of it. The look of our idolatry has changed, but not the substance of it. The real challenge for us in this is the temptation to merge the worship, to merge the worship of the true God with the worship of false gods. It's an activity known as syncretism. We don't stop going to church. We don't stop speaking the language of the gospel. We don't stop participating in church activities. We don't stop giving up, uh, giving lip service to the praise of God. We just add to that and equally, and at times, more consuming devotion to those gods that are no gods at all. Money, nation, sex, safety, power, and the like. And here's how we know that we've entered, that we've entered into this dangerous world 
of merging the worship of God with the worship of false gods. When our view of other human beings becomes distorted, such that we are viewing them not as the God of the Bible instructs us to, but from the perspective of those other gods, when we start treating people like commodities, like threats, like objects, like other, then we are likely trending toward idolatry. When we embrace the worldview of those false gods about other human beings, we are trending toward idolatry. And the same is true in our view of God. When our view of God's character becomes distorted, such that, such that things we love become the things God loves, then we are trending toward idolatry. When God loves our political party and hates the other, then we are trending toward idolatry. When God works for justice for our people and distorts justice for other people groups, we are trending toward idolatry. When God destroys all our enemies, rather than proclaiming the gospel of his love for enemies, then we are trending toward idolatry. If we're going to be a church joining gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids and beyond as a God-glorifying church, then we need to examine ourselves individually and corporately for those dangerous idols that seek to draw us into a syncretistic worship where God and our idols stand side by side, demanding our devotion. There is only one true and living God, and our neighbors need to see Him. There is only one true and living God, and our neighbors need to see Him, not our idols and not theirs. Amen, people of God. In verses 22, 23 through 30, Paul gives us another principles, another principle. Living, living free of idols, number one. Number two, living for the good of others. In verses 23 through 30, Paul moves to another principle in the Christian life in giving glory to God. We are sti we're still in the world of idolatry, only the context has changed from a feast and celebration to an idol to grocery shopping in the public market and eating a meal in the home of an unbeliever. In ancient times, just like in some places in our cities, there were public markets where meat and other goods were sold. And when Ty and I were in Seattle, we got to go to a, a public market downtown. I can't remember the name of it. It was a cool experience. In St. Louis, we had a place called uh, Soulard uh, that was similar. In ancient times, these public markets sold meat and food that had been offered uh, as sacrifice in the temple of the idols. Some of the food uh, once it served its sacrificial purpose, would be sent to the market for purchase. In a circumstance where a believer is buying food from the market, Paul says, it's okay to purchase it and eat it without questioning, questioning the seller as to where it came from. In this case, whether or not it had been offered in sacrifice at the temple. We'll come back to that in a moment. In another scenario, Paul addresses a believer who wants to go and eat in the home of an unbeliever. And Paul says, in such a case, if a believer wants to go, he can go and should eat whatever is set before him without questioning his host about where the food came from. That is, whether or not it was a food that had been sacrificed in the temple of an idol. He asked the question, what's going on here? On the one hand, Paul tells us to flee idolatry, to run as far away as we can. Yet here he's telling us that it's okay 
to purchase food that may have been sacrificed to idols and to eat at the home of an unbeliever where the food may have been sacrificed in the temple of an idol. What's going on? Well, look back at verse 19. Paul says this there. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? The answer, of course, is no. And Paul's point is there is no such thing as an idol, and Christians know this, or should know this. Indeed, Christians should know Psalm 24, what it declares when Paul quotes it in verse 26, for the earth is whose? The Lord's and the fullness thereof. All the resources on this planet belong to the Lord, for He is the creator of the universe. So what is Paul's point? Well, he tells us in verse 28, in the scenario of eating at the home of an unbeliever, the only time, Paul says, you are forbidden to eat is when you are told directly by the person that the food has been offered to idols. Idol feasts are out of the question because they are meals set up for the express purpose of celebrating the idol. But so is the situation in which a person tells you that the food you are about to eat was sacrificed to an idol. In these cases, you are not to eat. And here's why. Paul tells us, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Not your conscience' sake, but for his or her conscience's sake. And therein lies the second principle and how we glorify God in our day-to-day lives. We do so by attending to Paul's words in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see, the problem in Corinth was and is the problem that exists among all human beings. And it's summed up in verse 23, where Paul quotes the Corinthians, some of whom are saying, all things are lawful. In other words, I can do whatever I want. The problem is our commitment to self, our commitment to the exercise of our own rights over and above and at the expense of others. The, church, the church's problem in Corinth was a me-first problem. There's nothing more important than my rights. That sound familiar? That sound familiar? That's because it's also an American church problem. We have been inundated with the teaching that nothing matters more than my individual rights. But this is not how the Christian is called to live. The Christian is called to a life that mimics the life of our Lord. There is no one freer than Christ. Christ is God, the second person of the triune Godhead. He was and is sinless, free from all corruption, and all darkness. He is the King of kings, sharing rule and authority over everything and everyone in this world. You want to talk about rights? There is no one with more rights than Him. Yet what did He do with those rights? Listen again to Philippians chapter 2. Though He was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And those of us who are united with Christ, free from the power of sin and death, members of his kingdom, we are now those who have a liberty greater than any in the human community. Yet how are we to carry that freedom? How are we to carry those rights in the same way that Christ did for the good of others? Our day-to-day interactions must be guided not by a commitment to please ourselves, but a commitment to do what builds others up. This is a uniquely Christian commitment, a life where those who are most free bind themselves to doing good for the sake of others. And I wonder if you carried your rights in that way, if you used them the way Christ used His rights for your sake, I just wonder what the world would look like. I wonder what the church would look like if people held their rights the way Christ held His rights. I wonder what would happen if folk took on the form of servants rather than taking on the form of people who want to be served. I wonder what would happen if people humbled themselves and actually used what they have to do good for other people. I wonder not just what the church might look like, but what a city might look like that has churches on every single corner. I wonder what would happen if Christians learned how to hold their rights the way Jesus held his rights. I wonder what would happen if churches took on the mindset that we are servants for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the community, and we will use our freedom not for our own good, but for the good of others. I wonder what the education system would look like if you thought not just about your kids getting educated, but if you thought about other people's kids getting educated. I wonder what would happen if you use your money and your resources for the good and benefit of others. Doesn't matter whether we want to believe it or not, but there are people who because of our individual and corporate practices enjoy less liberty, less freedom in this world. The poor enjoy less liberty and less freedom due to a lack of resources, which is not simply the result of their own sin. Yes, their sin is part of the equation, but it's not the whole equation. Our individual and corporate greed contributes to the poverty of the poor. I'm going to say that again because some of y'all weren't paying attention. You were doing other things. Our individual and corporate greed contributes to the poverty of the poor. John is very clear about how Christians with, these, with this world's goods are called to behave toward the poor 
within the body of Christ, saying, but if anyone has this world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? Little children, well, it's not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It's 1 John 3, 17 and 18. And the Apostle Paul extends our call to do good to those outside of the church, saying, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to who? Everybody, especially those who are of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. For some of us, our abundance of resources frees us from hunger, frees us from homelessness, frees us from poor education and the like. That freedom that God has given us through providing us with material goods is not meant simply to secure our own advantage, but to be used toward the advantage of others. I'm using a different example than Paul's here, but it's a biblical one, and it shows us another category, the category of money. In that category, how are we called to use our liberty for the advantage of others? If you have the freedom that having this world's goods provides, then you're called to use it to help others. And you all do this. You do. You do it already. I get to sit with the deacons and hear ways that they are helping to serve those in our community. But I'm actually encouraging you to do it more and more, to be willing to inconvenience yourselves for the benefit of others. To join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids as a God-glorifying church means asking ourselves what liberties we have and how can we use those for the benefit of our community internally and externally. You want to live for the glory of God? Live free of idols. Live for the good of others. Lastly, live toward the salvation of all. Live toward the salvation of all. In verses 31 to 33, we see another principle in our Christian life in living for the glory of God. It's a principle you've heard many times from me already, and it permeates the teaching of the Scriptures. We as Christians are called to live toward the purpose of seeing others saved, toward seeing others transferred into the kingdom of Christ. How do we do this? How do we live in this way? Paul tells us in verse 32 when he says this, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Pay attention. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. In other words, live in such a way that you don't put a stumbling block in another's path that keeps them from getting to Christ. Paul isn't talking about not offending in the sense of people not being upset with you or not liking you, or not inviting you to their social gatherings. He is speaking to not obscuring the gospel through conduct or practice that turns people off to the gospel. In context, that means not living with that me-first attitude that we just talked about. Yet it also includes other things, like those underhanded practices we talked about a week ago, a couple weeks ago where we do whatever we think we need to, to in order to win the argument. It looks like greed 
masked as responsible oversight of my resources. It can look like sexually immoral behavior that not even unbelievers condone, which Paul talks about earlier in the letter. It looks like defaming the name of fellow believers to win public praise or sympathy. It looks like insults thrown at believers and non-believers when we are angry and frustrated with them. All those things and more can get in the way of a faithful presentation of the gospel to insiders and to outsiders. And here's what I see as a crucial point in this text. This command to give no offense applies to Jews, to Gentiles, and to the church of God. Our call, in other words, covers the scope of the human community. We don't get to excuse. Now I'm going to get in trouble. We don't get to excuse our offensive behavior or practices based on identifying someone as the other. We don't get to say, well, they are unbelievers, so it's okay. Well, they are liberals, so it's okay. Well, they are, uh, they are critical race theorists, so it's okay. Well, they are conservatives, so it's okay. Well, they're white, so it's okay. Well, they're foreigners, so it's okay. Well, they're LGBTQ+, so it's okay. It's not okay for Christians to put a stumbling block in people's way to be able to see Christ and come to know Him as Lord and Savior. If you are putting a stumbling block in people's way with your offensive speech and conduct, you are doing the exact opposite of what Paul tells us. Paul says, I want people to come to see and know Christ, and that's the call of the people of God. You know how you glorify God? is by not giving any offense or putting anything in the way of people seeing and knowing that Christ is Savior and Lord. We are to give no offense in our living among the whole human community in order that they may be saved. That's what Paul says. Don't go out of here, by the way, saying what I didn't say. I didn't say we dumbed down the gospel so as not to hurt feelings. I said what Paul said, give no offense. We don't name call. We don't berate. We don't ridicule. We don't mock. We don't judge. We don't condemn. We preach Jesus calling people among the whole human community to turn away from serving their idols to serve the living and true God. And we do it not seeking our own advantage, but the advantage of the many, the advantage of helping them to come to know and be united to the God who created them in His image and after His likeness through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son and our Lord. And so here's the call, is to examine ourselves, to see where we might be guilty of being offensive. It means guarding our language when we're talking about others, even those who we might consider genuine enemies of the gospel. 
we don't get to hide behind the call to be prophetic, to say ugly and angry things about other people. We are called out to call out sin and injustice, to speak truthfully about actions that are against the will of God, but we don't get to be evil. Did y'all hear me? We don't get to be evil. You don't get to tweet out evil things to people. You don't get to hide behind aliases. While you say evil and ungodly things to and about people. We don't get to be unrighteous. We don't get to be ungodly in our speech. But speech isn't the only stumbling block that we can be guilty of putting in other people's way. Prejudice, racism, sexism, and the like are stumbling blocks. People who enter our doors, listen to me, because this is what I want for people. This is what I want for us at New City Fellowship. People who enter our doors should feel and experience in the way we do things the invitation of the Lord Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's Matthew 11, 28 through 30. If folk don't feel and experience that invitation among us, we must ask ourselves, what is in the way? What is it about what we're saying or doing that acts as a stumbling block to people experiencing that invitation of Christ among us? And so to join in, to join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids as a God-glorifying church, means putting no stumbling block in the way of our neighbors whom Jesus is calling to himself. You want to glorify God? Live free from idols. You want to glorify God? Live for the good of others. You want to glorify God? Live toward the salvation of all. If we do that, New City, God will be praised. God will be glorified. His name will be spread, not only throughout Southeast Grand Rapids, but throughout our city. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the defining motivation and purpose of our lives. We were created for that, created in our relating to God, to each other, and to the creation to bring glory to the only true and living God. Paul tells us what such a lifestyle looks like, looks like living free from idols, living for the good of others, living toward the salvation of all. May God, may God make us a God-glorifying community here in Southeast Grand Rapids and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you to make this true of us. Make us a community individually and corporately, 
that gives glory to you in all we do. I pray, Lord God, that you enable us to be a community that lives free from idolatry, a community that lives to the good of others, and a community that lives toward the salvation of all. Father, may you, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, shape us into that kind of community for your glory, honor, and praise among all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.